So I want to start by reading the passage again. We're in Matthew 12, starting in verse 1. It says, At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him to eat, nor those who are with him, but only for the priest. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. I want to start with a question when it comes to uh, this idea of being changed by the Word of God. And the question is simple. When's the last time you read your Bible? When's the last time you read your Bible? How would you answer that question? Would you say, oh, yesterday, last week, this morning, right now, that's, that's when I last read my Bible. I want you to think about that question and have that question in your mind as we continue. Uh, I want to set the scene a little bit of the passage we just read. Uh, I think this passage showcases a common pattern that we see in the gospel, and that's that Jesus and his disciples act, and the Pharisees question their actions, a bunch of haters, right? And then Jesus answers their question with a rebuke. It's like my childhood a little bit, that's what my parents would do, you know? So the Pharisee, or I'm sorry, the disciples and Jesus would act, the Pharisees would question that action, and then Jesus would answer their question with a rebuke. That, that's a very common pattern you see throughout the gospel, right? It happens a lot. And so the question here is, okay, what exactly did Jesus slash his disciples do? And what were the questions? Well, what, I, what happened actually is as I was studying the first part of this passage that you know, you think I would learn how many times this has happened where the Pharisees questioned Jesus that we should stop doing it. But what happened was that as I studied what the disciples did, I actually began to have a question of my own. Foolish, right? But I began to actually wonder and question myself what the disciples were doing. Because when you read the passage, it says that they picked grains of head, a head of grains because they were hungry. And on one hand, I was like, that's kind of weird. One, it just sounds kind of disgusting. Like, who wants to eat grains like a vegan diet? It's not sound tasty, you know what I'm saying? But on the other hand, it's just kind of weird that they did that. And so I looked into more about what was happening here. You know what I found out? It was very interesting. I found out that the heads of the grains that they were eating from were probably from the edges of random Jewish farmers' fields and we know this because in Leviticus, God instructs Jewish farmers to not reap the harvest of all their fields, but to leave the edge of their fields unrepped. That's the black version. Leave the edges of the fields unrepped. Don't reap that part. 
right? That's what he says. It might know why he said not to do that or to, or, or to leave that part of the field unrepped. You might know why. It's for the poor. It's for, it's for the poor. It's for the foreigners, it's for the widows, it's for the most vulnerable people in society. That, that's why God says, leave this part of your field, the edges, with some heads of grain for people to pick and eat. So my question became, I became like a Pharisee. I was like, wait. So my question is, why is it okay that the disciples seem to be eating wheat that was reserved for specific people? It's a good question, right? I was kind of proud of myself. I could be a Pharisee, you know? Probably pays better. Look, yeah. <clears throat> Anyways. <laughs> Brian's not here. Um, and, I mean, it's funny because the Pharisees, well, they don't even ask this question. And it shows how they're only concerned with their rituals and their laws. They don't even care about the poor people, right? But it's interesting because though they don't ask this question, Jesus actually answers both my question and the Pharisees' question, right? And so the act that they do is they pluck this head of wheat on the Sabbath. It seems so innocent. And the Pharisees and I question that act. And so let's see how Jesus answers and rebukes us in his answers. Verse 3, we see uh, right away he says, um, Have you not read? Have you not read? And I want to pause here for a second so we could all appreciate how disrespectful this question is that Jesus is asking. He, he says, have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? Let me remind you guys that Jesus is talking to Jewish religious leaders who literally memorized the Torah and were intimately familiar with all the writings of the prophet. That's who he's talking to. And he says, have you not read the story about one of the greatest patriarchs in your history? That's disrespectful. You see that? In some ways, it's kind of nonsensical, right, you might say. Did he forget who he was talking to? Why would he even ask this question? And we know it's not a mistake only because of this reason. He's done this so many times before. In fact, he uses this exact phrase throughout the gospel. In Matthew 19, when they're questioning him about divorce, he says, Have you not read that he who created them began male and female? In 21, when they're criticizing the children, he says, have you not read that out of the mouths of babes and infants that this praise would come? In 21, where they're asking him about, about a parable, he says, have you not read the scriptures? The stone that was rejected has become the cornerstone, right? In 22, when they're asking him a, a question about the resurrection, he says, have you not read what was said to you by God, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and of Jacob. He likes to ask the Pharisees this question, have you not read? This is weird, right? Because they have. 
read the scriptures. And so it seems like either Jesus is missing something or just wants to be disrespectful or perhaps when the Pharisees are trying time and time again to flex their theological knowledge to question Jesus, he responds by asking them if they have truly read the scriptures they seem to be so intimate with. What it seems like he is saying is that it's possible to read the word of God and yet have not read it. You see what I'm saying? I'll say it again. I know some of y'all, you're like me, you didn't go to Northwestern, you didn't hear it twice. You know. <laughs> it's possible to read, memorize, study the words of the Bible and yet have not read it or understood what it's all about. Do you see why I asked you the question, when's the last time you've read your Bible? I'm lost. Where am I? And so the heart of my sermon is simply this, that the American church, especially us young American Christians, we have unparalleled access to Scripture. It's, it's ridiculous. People would have died to have what we have. We have unparalleled access to the Bible, and yet so often we don't read it, or at least we don't, we don't read it in a way that leads to Christ-centered change in our lives. I like a quote by Gandhi I found this week. It says, uh, you Christians look after a document containing enough dynamite to blow all of civilization to pieces. It could turn the world upside down and bring peace to a battle-torn planet. But you treat it as though it was nothing more than a piece of literature. I don't know if Gandhi actually, we always say, you know, we always say it's Gandhi. I don't know if Gandhi actually said that, right? But I think it's a telling quote because he's not even a Christian. Yeah, he sees the potential that the word of God has to transform not just our lives, but the world. And this is a scary reality that the same mouth of God that literally spoke the kind of words that made hundreds of billions of galaxies and planets can speak to us and like nothing would happen. That's a scary reality, isn't it? That we can encounter the word that could bring to life a dead body and yet our hearts will be so cold that there's no vitality added when we encounter his word. That is a scary, scary reality. So the question is, how do we make his words no longer devoid of its mighty power? What do we do that makes it seem like we transform the Bible from dynamite into literature? And so far, it seems like I'm asking us about a bunch of questions without any answers, and so... Let's keep reading and see if Jesus helps us out a little bit. And so going back to the passage I see in uh, 
Verse 3 says, have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of presence, which is not lawful for him to eat, nor those who were with him, but only for the priest. Have you not read in the law how the Sabbath, on the Sabbath, the priest in the temple profane the Sabbath, and yet were guiltless? So it seemed like to answer all these questions that we have, Jesus is sharing two stories, stories that both vindicate his disciples and condemn the Pharisees and many of us in our approach to Scripture. You see, Jewish law made it pretty clear that it was not okay to eat bread that was ascribed just for the priest. Yet that's what David does. And Jewish law makes it pretty clear it's not okay to work on the Sabbath, but that's what the priests do. In a similar matter, Christian law says it's not okay to not read your Bible. It's not okay to not go to church. It's not okay to not serve. It's not okay to not look like a good Christian. It's not okay to swear. It's not okay. You know what I'm saying? Christian law says similar things. And what does Jesus say? He says, uh, what he implies is when you forget the gospel and get so caught up in simply following the law, whatever that law is, so that you look like a good Jew or like a good Christian, that you forget what the purpose of the law was in the first place. And so how often has our spiritual disciplines become lifeless rituals that we feel pressured to follow? How often does the Bible lose its vigor and vitality in our lives and instead become a dud? A bunch of rules that suppresses us rather than frees us. Do do you see the parallel? The Pharisees had these laws that God had given them that were good. And the Christian laws to read the Bible and to pray, these disciplines, these are good. And yet Christ is saying, but it's still possible that you could do these things and still miss the point. Why? Because it's just rituals to you at some point. It's just laws. You forgot the purpose behind it. It's a scary reality again. But it's a hopeful word, isn't it? That all of Scripture is actually God-breathed. I forget that all the time. That these words come from the breath of God. How amazing is that? That all of Scripture is actually living and active. It interacts with us. That all of Scripture is like a fire, as the Bible says. That his word is like a hammer that could break rocks or boulders that are keeping us from maturing in our faith. That the word of God comes from his mouth and it doesn't return to him empty. But it accomplishes whatever it is that he purposed it to do. That it will succeed in the thing that he has sent for it. That is the word of God that we have with us. It doesn't have to be a lifeless ritual. And so the hope is uh, 
And although so often we treat it like something devoid of power, that the word of God is powerful. If we remember its purpose. And so what then is the purpose of the scripture that God has given us? How does it go from being literature to a lamp to our feet and a light to our path? I think this too we see in Christ's response to the Pharisees. You guys notice that in the two stories he shares, it has a lot of similarities. There's a lot of common themes in them. Both mention priests, um, but besides that, they mention the temple or the house of God. Did you notice that? In both stories, they mention the temple or the house of God. Why did he pick these uh, two stories? I mean, there has to be a lot of examples that Jesus could have used to show how people have broken Jewish law. But he picked these two stories in particular. Why? And I wonder if it's because the temple and the house of God usually represents what? Anybody? The presence of God, right? It seems like Jesus, in the midst of all these questions, wants to remind the Pharisees of the presence of God. Do you guys see kind of where I'm going with this? Some of y'all look a little bit confused. Maybe not. We'll keep going, right? I'll break it down a little bit more. Uh, David, King David in his story, breaks the law because he eats bread in the temple, but not any kind of bread. What kind of bread was it? What does it say? Bread of the presence. Okay. He was craving something that symbolized the presence of God. The priests break the law because they're working on the Sabbath. What kind of work do you think they were doing on a Sabbath? They were sweeping or wiping windows, using a Dyson to vacuum. I actually just got a Dyson. That's why I said that. It's amazing. I know how amazing Dyson is. It's like fun to clean. Anyways, um, why do you think, or what do you think they were doing? What kind of work would be so important that the priests would break the Sabbath for? Anybody bold? What are they doing? Probably offering sacrifices. That's one of the only thing they would do every day regardless of what day it is. So they were offering sacrifices to usher in what? The presence of God. David breaks the law for the presence of God. The Pharisees, I'm sorry, priests break the law for the presence of of God. It seems like what Jesus is suggesting that David and the priests were not actually breaking the law because they were simply pursuing the presence of God, which is the purpose of the law to begin with. And this is what the Pharisees were missing that all that God has said, and all that God has commanded, and all that God has done is so that His presence can be reunited with humankind. That the rituals and the, and the laws and the disciplines that are suggested to us are so that we can encounter God. That's the purpose behind all of this. The point of you reading your Bible so that you see the Lord. 
that when you open the book, you will literally encounter your father who loves you. I, I do not remember hearing that when I was growing up. I remember the law. I remember what they said to me. If you're a good Christian, you're going to read your Bible right when you wake up. And you're going to memorize these verses, right? And you're going to learn Greek and Hebrew and Latin and Spanish, whatever you need to learn in order to get the real me. You know what I'm saying? That, that's what they, that was the law. That's what they told me. They never told me that the purpose of the discipline of reading the Bible is so that you see Jesus. Like that's, what, that's the point of it. That's all that matters ultimately. Even if you break the rules of looking like a good Christian, right? God forbid, maybe you listen to your Bible. Maybe you li- read it at lunchtime. Maybe you don't know Greek. Maybe, you know what I'm saying? But you see God in the Word. That's the point of it. I, I never, I don't know about you, I never heard that when I was given the law of reading my Bible. And it's funny, I mean, I think all church fathers knew this, that you could find Christ in every word. You could see God on every page. I actually took a historical anatomy class when I was at Wheaton my senior year, and we would literally read the writings of the church fathers, Athanasius, Augustine, Irenaeus, all those guys, right? And we would read how they would interpret Scripture, and there was some crazy stuff in there. Oh, the numbers of angels mean the numbers of times of God. And, and you're like, I feel like that's not true. You know what I'm saying? And you like want to judge them. Y'all ever read Galatians 4 where Paul's talking about Hagar and Sarah and there's two covenants and Hagar is Mount Sinai and Sarah is Jerusalem. And you're like, want to be like, I don't know about that one, chief. You know what I'm saying? But you're like, I guess it's in the Bible, so it must be true. Right? But he's like this approach that all the early Christians had where they would read and we think that the Bible has a literal meaning and a deeper spiritual meaning that's invisible to us. And so one of the most notorious uh, church fathers who always did this, and people called him a heretic, uh, was Origen. And uh, when people would criticize him, you know how he would defend his approach to reading scripture? He wouldn't start with uh, hermeneutics. He wouldn't be like, well, I think exegesis comes through this way, and so we must have, you know what I'm saying? He wouldn't start like that. He would start actually with what I call metaphysics, meaning that he would start with the idea or basically the question of how does the abstract become eminent? How does the invisible interact with the visible? How is that which cannot be known revealed to be known? And he would argue that it happens through the Bible. That God, the omnipotent God, reveals himself to fallen humanity through the Bible. That's what he says. He said that's why we read how we read, because we're looking to encounter God like now, today. For, and, and not to be an archaic word, but a word for us today. They treated scripture like, like a sacrament, basically. Like baptism or the Lord's Supper. It doesn't just point to God. But in, in an invisible way, it could actually make God present with us right now. That's how they viewed scripture. That was their expectation whenever they read their Bibles. I don't remember hearing that when I was a kid. 
that I should expect to see the Lord when I read the word. I was never taught how to do that. I was never taught to do that. So my question is, is it possible that that's the purpose of the word of God, of our spiritual disciplines that he's given us? I mean, a question I started asking, I'm a little bit off script now, but a question I started asking myself when I read the Bible is simply this, God, what is it you're trying to show me? What is it you're trying to say about yourself? What is it about your nature you're trying to reveal to me? Like, like is it that you hate sin and what it does to this world? Is it that you want me to obey because you know that that will lead to true flourishing? You know? Is it that you're kind and that you're patient? That even when I mess up, you'll forgive me? What is it that you're trying to reveal to me as I read this passage? No matter what passage it is, God, what are you trying to say to me now? Is it possible that when I'm reminded of the Lord's characteristics in his word, that suddenly I, I can say, if that's true, if God is truly mighty to save in the midst of battle, If God has truly removed my sins as far as the east is from the west, if it's true that God will never leave me and never forsake me, then maybe even now when I feel down and I feel lonely and I feel desolate, that I have hope. If it's true that God says that the bride of Christ, us, not only can we change, but we will change and we will come before him, betrothed to him, shining forever, then perhaps it's true that we can have hope in this church and where we're going to go. So I think that remembering that, seeing God in his word, Seeing Christ on the pages through the Spirit gives us a hope and an encounter for change that goes beyond the spiritual discipline itself. I do believe that Christ is calling us to remember that our souls are longing to be reunited to the one who has called us beloved. And we can find him in the word of God. Finally, I want to go ahead and skip ahead to verse 7 and 8. He says, if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. What's the difference between sacrifice and mercy? Is it not that sacrifice is a ritualistic law that can happen independent from God while true mercy only happens when you see God and he changes you to look just like him that's the difference I want to end kind of with this point this whole sermon series on change has been a difficult one for me because whenever I look at my life I'm like perfectionist and so I can always spot things that I want to change it's amazing. When I was younger, I had such good discipline and willpower and very, very obvious flaws that when I set my mind to it, I could become a better person. 
Something happens when you get a little bit older, you know. At least for me, I become a little bit uh, less driven, or my flaws become a little bit less obvious. And suddenly I feel like I've almost peaked in my maturity as a Christian. Like I generally feel at times I've peaked. And I get worried. I'm like, bro, I'm like not that old yet. And is this as good as it gets? And so I was praying and praying through this whole sermon. God, what does it actually mean to change? And God reminded me of a story. Um, I was talking to a friend, uh, and uh, I won't say who it is, but we've been friends for a long time. And, you know, we talked a little bit about God, but there was this particular moment where it was like perfect. Where he was kind of at a point where he was open to hear the gospel when he never was before. And by now I had very good rhetoric and theological acumen, you know what I'm saying? And so I sat down and I used great, beautiful exposition of the gospel. It was relevant to him. It was funny, you know what I'm saying? It was like beautiful. And I kid you not, when I was done, he was like, dang, that was beautiful. He literally said those words. I was like, true, you know. You know what he said? But honestly, I don't know. He's like, I'm just young. I don't really think I need to change my life. And it was one of the most humbling experiences of my life. Because I realized he could only change if God changes him. Like, he has to encounter God. Like, I literally can't do anything. Like, that was like, that was, it was awesome. It was great, you know what I'm saying? And, and he was like, that was, he admitted, that was good. But it won't change me. And it began to help me understand that even for myself, I have to have a supernatural encounter with the Lord as a catalyst for change. And I'm saying this, I'm begging you guys, because I know if you're like me, you, you believe it, but you do not believe it. Like you are still convinced if you use willpower, if you build good systems, that you could change the things you see. You cannot. It work, only works so long. The spirit of God within you is longing to look more like Christ. And the spirit of God, therefore, is longing for the presence of Christ, because that's how change happens. That's how it happens. And so I love uh, this story. One last thing is that it, it, it kind of foreshadows the gospel a little bit. Now you see David, he's eating this bread that was reserved for the priest, right? Reserved for a specific group. You see the disciples, they're eating wheat that was reserved for a specific group. And suddenly, uh, Jesus says, you know, someone greater than the the temple is here. Because I am the new temple, right? I am the new place where the presence of God dwells. And I am on the move. And so now... The presence of God is not reserved for a certain group anymore. But even David can eat the bread. You see that? And even my disciples can pluck the wheat. Because now the presence of God is for everybody. 
through the Spirit, and through the Word. It's for everybody. That's what Christ has done for us is he's granted us a chance to encounter the one who has called us beloved and the one who will truly change us. Let's pray.